Welcome to Montgomery Community Church Podcast. Thank you so much for listening today. We hope this message encourages you and inspires you to grow deeper in your faith. If you'd like to learn more about MCC, you can visit our website at mcc.church. Well, a wise man known as King Solomon once wrote the following words that keep ringing throughout every generation. There is a way that appears to be right, but in the end, it leads to death. Have you ever faced that reality in your own life? Boy, this way looked great. I mean, there's nothing bad about it. And so you went down this road. It appeared to be great, but in the end, pain. A lot of pain. There is a way that appears to be right, but in the end, it leads to death. Well, those words were written some 3,000 years ago, and since Solomon originally wrote those words, where are we now? Where are we now? Well, David Brooks, he's a cultural commentator who writes for the New York Times. He was also an atheist for most of his life, just came to Christ about seven years ago. He recently told us where we are now and then how we got here. He says, right now, the number of people who say they suffer from depression is up 57%. A lot of hurting people in our world today. The number of Americans who say that no one knows them well stands at 54%. That means over half the people in this room, if they were honest, would say, boy, I'm trying my best, but no one really knows me. It's a lonely existence. Brooks says, we've seen a record growth in violence within our city centers. Substance abuse is growing in staggering numbers. And people are fighting on airplanes now more than ever. Oh, how we long for the friendly skies of United. Brooks has said that many of these stats were already in place by 2013, but COVID served as the capstone. Looking back then, he said, okay, how did we get here? Well, he said, there once was a day, you might remember this day, or an age, right? Uh, when, when people, even if they weren't religious, they knew something wasn't right inside of them. The Bible, of course, calls that sin, and Brooks says many people don't want to use that word. They use other names, but still, at some level, most people agree that there is something broken inside of us that needs repair and transformation. And part of this transformation process included back then our need for one another. Brooks has said that while some people went to church and looked to God to solve their sin problem, others tried to deal with that problem differently. Some joined the military. It was there where their character would be refined. They'd become a better person as they were sharpened each day by their band of brothers or sisters. Others went to the universities. It was there they could read books and study and learn more about what's going on in here. And then they could dialogue with others about what they learned and hopefully find a better way forward. So there was some sense of agreement. They knew, people did, that there was something that was wrong in their internal life that needed to be addressed, and they needed others in their life to help find better ground. But then came a shift in society. Brooks says, instead of people believing that something is wrong within me, people started believing there is something good within me, so I'm not sinful. I just need to live out the good that already resides there. Well, in order to make this shift work, truth needed to become relative. This way, what works best for you is good for you, and what works best for me is good for me. 
And this led to a mindset that said, we are all morally good. So there's no need for judgment. I won't judge you, you won't judge me because we're all morally good. And that sounded really good until people started to realize that they weren't inherently good and that their different priorities clashed with one another. Solomon said, there is a way that appears to be right, but in the end it leads to death. And this led to what Brooks calls moral anarchy. Uh, some of the results would be the breakup in the family, the breakup in marriages. And since moral anarchy isn't any fun for anybody, people started looking for something else out there that could provide them some sense of worth and identity. Next stop, tribalism. Tribalism. People began flocking to whatever group seemed most like them and then found their identity within that group. And while tribes have existed in some way or another uh, for a while now, uh, people who do this, they bond together around ideology, religion, or race. But Brooks has said in our day and age, in our culture right now, uh, what's really most common is that people are centered around politics. That politics has taken on a life of its own when it comes to our daily lives. I first started to see this maybe just maybe two years or so before COVID hit. I preached on that particular Sunday, just like I'm preaching right now. And afterwards, I would always go out into the lobby and I would stand there and all these different people would come up to me and talk to me. I loved it. I loved meeting people. And, but it, this one guy comes up and he was so incredibly thankful. He said he was so touched by what I said. And then he says, I heard you loud and clear. Thank you. I said, well, that's great. I, I'm thankful that you were touched by what I said. What exactly was it that I said that touched you? He says, I want to thank you for what you said against Trump's wall. I never talked about a wall. In fact, the last time I talked about a wall was like four years before that when I talked about Nehemiah building a wall. I never talked about the president. I never talked about anything in that sermon that had anything to do with that. And yet he was so thankful for what I clearly said. He'll never forget it. You see, when we embrace tribalism, we start seeing things that aren't there. And we start hearing things that aren't there because we're taught to look and, and hear in that way. And so people embrace a tribe. They're indoctrinated to embrace groupthink, which means you start really embracing what the group thinks. But as an individual, you carry those thoughts powerfully within you wherever you go. And where has that taken us? Well, where once people believe we are all morally good, so there's no need for judgment, now people believe that if you don't think like my group exactly, you deserve to be judged severely. We'll cancel you. You see, it's a lot easier to say that sin resides over there than it is to say that sin resides within me. Hmm. There is a way that appears to be right. But in the end, it leads to death. And one result of all that death is a lack of empathy towards others, which has led to a spiraling effect in our culture. It looks like this. The more I care about me, well, of course, the less I can care about you. And the less I care about you, the less I care about your point of view. And the less that I'm interested in your point of view, the less I desire to cooperate with you about how to solve problems that impact you. Put that all together, and what do you have? A me-centered world. 
There is a way that appears to be right, but in the end, it leads to death. And this isn't new. The Apostle Paul saw me-ism kind of rising up with various churches in the first century. And particularly, he was focusing in on Corinth. Back in the first century, this church was stressing some things while really stressing other things more than they should. And it was causing all this division. For example, in that church, the spiritual gift of tongues was either deemed high in importance or highest in importance. Many within that church thought that the more they spoke in tongues, the more they spoke in other languages, the more they displayed their higher level of Christianity. And they really thought a lot of themselves. So within that church, you had a group of people who deemed themselves spiritually elite And then you had the other people in the church that represented a low form of Christianity. The Apostle Paul had to set them straight with words that are often read at a wedding, but the context is actually what I described. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, well, I gain nothing. And then he told them, well, many things will cease to exist in the life of a Christian. After Jesus comes back, for example, the gift of tongues, he says, love, well, love never fails. And then just to make sure that they didn't overlook what he just clearly had taught them, he teaches them again in a slightly different way. And he says, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. It's a powerful lesson, but it wasn't a new lesson. It was a lesson they were just faithful to forget over and over and over and over again. In fact, this was the same lesson Jesus taught a religious leader before Paul became a significant leader within the early church. This man was really tired. He was tired of trying to live by the 600 or plus commandments in the Jewish law. So he comes up to Jesus one day and he said, of all the commandments, which is the most important? He's really saying, Jesus, can you help me out here? Can you just sum them all up into one commandment I can actually live by, please? That'd be so much easier. But Jesus heard his heart and gave him two, not just one. The most important one, Jesus said, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So Jesus made things a lot simpler, but not necessarily a lot easier. I mean, after all, is it really easy to fully love God and fully love others? Is it? Well, for honest, loving God should be natural for us since he first loved us, but loving others, that can seem unnatural. And so when we actually see selflessness and love displayed, we stop and we take notice. A little over a month ago, I was gone, you might remember that, and Carol and I were in the mountains of Montana, and we were skiing at Big Sky, Montana, and the place is Huge. The word big does not do it justice. It is humongous. And, and I don't know if you've ever skied out west in the mountains, but here's kind of how it works. It's not that you're selfish, but you do have to think about yourself before you go out on the mountain. 
So you have to think about your socks and if they're warm enough for that particular day, uh, you know, what you're going to wear, how many layers you're going to wear. I mean, you don't want to dress too warmly because you're stuck all day, I mean, sweating and it's miserable, but if you don't wear enough layers, you're going to be freezing cold, you won't be able to operate, you might even hurt yourself. So there's a lot of thought put in what you wear, and you really, otherwise, you, you pack lightly. Like you might have a, a bar that you're going to eat when you get a little hungry. You might put that in an upper pocket, maybe some other small little thing, but that's it. Well, we got on this lift. It was going to take us to the very you know, top of the mountain, about 15 minutes long. It was a six-pack, so six seats. So it was you know, myself, and then Carol, and then Melody, and then Luke, our son-in-law. These two other people... They came and sat right next to me. They were in their mid-20s, and so we're riding the chairlift, and I started talking to them. I learned that they were from Seattle. I learned what they do. We just were having a good time talking, and as we were talking, I saw this one person start to take off their backpack. Now, I was thinking as they were doing this, like the only time somebody wears a backpack would be to hold water. Like, they have a backpack. What are they doing? And then they started unzipping it. And then the other person next to me, this young woman, she said, you know, it was one of my goals today, you know, to give this drink to a father. And you're a father. Thanks for introducing me, you know, to your daughter. And, and so, so would you like this drink? And the next thing you know, they're handing out food and drinks to all of us there. Think about that. People packed ahead of time to share food and drinks with people they've never met and will never see again. How are you packing? What does that look like? Many would say I'm not doing well at that. And the thing is, and here's the honest thing, they would point to realities outside our faith, the Christian faith, as primary reasons for why they're not packing well, why they're not loving well. They would say social media, oh, it's evil, right? Cable news, it's driving us apart. And this thing called tribalism, yeah. I mean, it works with social media and cable news to kind of set us against one another. Uh, these things are bad. And the truth is, while these certainly contribute to our me-centered world, as Christians, we're called to be salt and light. We're supposed to be leading in this world. So if we're really gonna be humble, we should be looking inward before we start looking outward and blaming others. It wasn't that long ago when a worship leader known as Matt Redman, uh, he noticed the meism rising up within his own congregation. I mean, rather than love God and love others, Matt Redman noticed how people had fallen in love with other things when it came to their worship. The key words would be their worship. And so in his church, people have placed high priorities in what they thought about the lighting, the sound of the band, the volume of the band, the style of the music, how the pastor dressed. I mean, he would never wear sandals. And, you know, and what, and what the pastor would say. He better say it this way or it's not right. The quality of the singers, right? How long the worship lasted. All of these expectations about their worship based on me. So the congregation's love was loud. It was just loud for the wrong things. And so as Redmond was leading people in worship, I mean, they're all singing the words of whatever song that was, but he was hearing their heart songs coming back to him. And that song was sounded something like this. I'm coming back to the heart of worship, and it's all about me. It's all about me, Jesus. 
I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it. When it's all about me, it's all about me, Jesus. And so Revan put all the players, singers, and instruments aside for a season to simplify things so people could focus on the Lord. The Lord. And this also required Redmond to switch around a few of those lyrics that he was hearing emanating from his congregation's heart. And when he changed some of those lyrics around and then released this song, this song was soon sung by people all over the world. I'm coming back to the heart of worship and it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it. When it's all about you, it's all about you, Jesus. It's about him. Our worship, our lives, our love should be about Jesus. And if it is, then we would know that it's Jesus who called us to love one another with the same kind of selflessness that he displayed on the cross. We would know this, a love that sacrifices for another and places ourselves then in second or even third position. And that means if we're to love others well, we need to follow Jesus well. Otherwise, our love will fall short. That's why the apostle Peter wrote, he said, for to this, he says, you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Remember, Jesus said, come follow me. It's meant step after step after step. And, and Peter's saying that we may follow in his steps. So here's the thing now. Though if you look carefully in the Gospels, you will see that Jesus called people to follow him individually, not so they could live out some kind of personal or private faith that was about them. Jesus called people to follow him individually so they could immediately become part of God's worldwide family. That's why he did that. It's why he told one man, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. The world. It's why Jesus taught us to pray, our Father who art in heaven. And you know, while God is my Father, I must live every day knowing that he's really our Father. And this means that my prayer life needs to shift from me to we. My daily life needs to shift from me to we. My thought life needs to shift from me to we. And when it comes to us, well, we are not a tribe who looks and thinks all the same. We are a family united around Jesus Christ who are often different from one another. Isn't that beautiful? God made us this way. In fact, Paul addressed the reality of this worldwide family that God was creating out of Jews and Gentiles in the book of Ephesians in this letter and he writes in chapter two, he says, his purpose, God's purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and he preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the father by one spirit. See, Paul was taking a look at how Christians were treating one another and others in their everyday lives. And so he passionately and he powerfully declared that as followers of Jesus Christ, we need to be embracing one another in a me-centered world. 
Embracing one another in a me-centered world. Friends, the world can't see Jesus in us if all they see is me in us. Friends, we gotta make a shift from me to we. And that requires something that I like to call one anothering. One anothering. Did you know that the words one another, these two words are used in conjunction with each other 100 times in 94 New Testament verses. And while one another are two words in English, it's actually only one in the Greek, alelone. Will you say that word with me? Alelone. Say that again. Alelone means one another reciprocity mutually. So alelone is not a specific something we're told to do. It's who we are told to do many things to, for, and with. So when it comes to the use of a lay alone in scripture, 33% of the time, it references unity in the church. Unity in the church. You might be surprised to learn that just like the church today has problems, the church back then had problems. It's why Paul wrote to the church in Galatia, he says, if you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. And then in order to combat this problem, Paul told them what the remedy was two verses earlier. He said, serve one another humbly in love. What would that look like to serve one another humbly in love? Well, then from Galatians 5.15, let's move quickly to 1 Thessalonians 5.15, because after all, the church in Thessalonica wasn't doing a whole lot better. And Paul told them, he said, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil but I want to. I mean, they wronged me. I should wrong them. Maybe worse. Get them back, right? No, and we know that we're not supposed to do that. So what's the solution? Always seek to do good to one another, and then he adds, and to everyone. So Paul takes this one another in command from inside the walls of the church and then says it also belongs outside the walls of the church in the streets, we're told to do good to everyone as we seek unity as fellow believers. And that's why last Sunday, if you were here online, if you were watching and part of this whole thing, last Sunday while we were worshiping, in one Ukrainian church, the entire congregation prayed on their knees for their president, their country, and for peace. And then after the service, they held a first aid training course so that they could help anyone during the week that might be hurt. They were preparing to one another, someone. But what's interesting is that while that Ukrainian church was learning how to help one another if they were hurt, nearly 700 churches in Russia jointly declared a time of prayer and fasting for peace. 700 churches. And here's what they prayed. They prayed for peace between the fraternal peoples of Russia and Ukraine. They prayed for the authorities and rulers to have the fear of God, strength, and will for peacemaking. They prayed for the safety of the people of Ukraine, as well as Christians living in Ukraine in places of armed conflict. They prayed for the church, that God may preserve it from divisions and conflicts amid the aggravated situation. And they prayed for how they can respond to the needs of people affected by warfare. People both in churches in Russia and Ukraine prayed in unity for peace. Imagine what our church would look like. 
Imagine what your home would look like. Imagine what your workplace would look like and imagine what this world would look like if we would really care for one another. Friends, in order to do so, we gotta make a shift from me to we. And that's why 33% of the time, Olay alone focuses on unity in the church, which is directly related to the next slice of the pie. 33% of the time, Olay alone also references loving one another. And we talked about that in our last series on 1 John, going deeper, that John says, if you don't love one another, don't even call yourself a Christian. Your love for another person proves that you're following Christ. He was that serious about it. And so we see in scripture to love one another, through love serve one another, bear with one another in love, be devoted to one another in love. It's partly why we're offering the Meet the Pastors gathering next Sunday. So if you were with us for a while, first time, maybe you've been here for some years, whatever, that you could join us. I encourage you to sign up for that so that we can get to know each other, that we can grow in our love for one another. Jesus summed it up this way. He says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if, that's a big if, you love one another. Christ's love in us and through us should identify us. So where could this start for you? What does your chairlift ride look like? Friends, don't just let it take you to anywhere. Take a ride from me to we. And in order to get there, the Bible says, well, if you're gonna do that, you need to pursue a certain character trait. That's why around 15% of the time, a lay loan references humility towards one another. Take a look at some of these verses. Give preference to one another in honor. So what does it mean to go beyond just saying, you know, hi to somebody and that sometimes is overlooked? What does it look like to truly honor that other person that you're with? Imagine that. And then regard one another as more important than yourselves. That means you're going to want to listen to them, understand their story. Understand how you might be able to help them in some way. That leads to this command to serve one another. Wash one another's feet. You ever done that? I have. It's uncomfortable. And I think even more uncomfortable is have, you know, being the one where your feet is being washed. Especially if you didn't know ahead of time that they were going to do that. <laughs> right? It's pretty humiliating. Be subject to one another. It means to submit to one another. I love this. Clothe yourselves in humility toward one another. So that like every day we get up in the morning, we're gonna think, how am I going to dress so that people see humility? Humility and washing each other's feet and serving one another, preferring the other person. Carol and I, a little over a year ago, we moved to this brand new neighborhood, and it's not new anymore, but it was back then. We're kind of growing into it, and, and uh, you know what? About five houses down from where we live, uh, there's a man and, and a wife who live there, but he is an artist. So, I mean, beautiful. He makes his living doing this. So, he is beautiful. I mean, artwork, paintings. He makes stuff out of metal and all kinds of stuff. He is an artist. And because he lives five houses down, he also has to drive by our house every single time he leaves the neighborhood. And what he noticed was that, you know, at that time, 
we had moles in our front yard. Not just some, I mean, like every living mole that God's ever created on the earth was in our front yard. And he noticed. And I came home one day to find him in my front yard, digging it up, setting traps, doing all these different things, and he's come back over and over and over again. A man who uses his hands to create beautiful artwork would get his hands deep down in the dirt for Carol and I. What are you doing with your hands? What are you doing with your life? We need to ask for more humility if we're gonna make a shift from me to we. So Leilon is about unity, loving, and humility, and it covers a lot of ground, but there's more yet it covers. That's why around 19% of the time, a lay loan references various situations. Like do not judge one another and don't put a stumbling block in a brother's way. Husbands and wives, don't deprive one another of physical intimacy. Some here would like to say amen. And then there's speak truth to one another. Not your truth. Not what you heard on the news. Not your opinion, but God's truth. What could that look like? Well, come back. We're going to be talking about that. Don't lie to one another. And then comfort one another concerning the resurrection. Jesus is alive. That changes everything. Are we talking to each other about this? And then encourage and build up one another. When is the last time you walked up to somebody, sent an email or a text encouraging someone else and saying, wow, when I saw you do that, it like really rocked my world. Or are you just waiting for that text, that email, or that letter? And then encourage one another to love and good deeds. That's saying, you know what? Come and join us at Second Saturday Serve. Like, be part of this, would you? It makes such an impact. Or pray for one another. Not just for our meals or for what we want, but for others. Be hospitable to one another. And how do we do all these things? Well, by shifting from me to we. And I know what some of you are thinking right now. Phil, if this is our new series, and this series then is going to cover every single one another verse in the Bible, we're going to be here till Jesus comes back. Wouldn't that be great? I mean, think about that. Wouldn't that be awesome? Like all of us taken up together in the air as a family together while we're talking about how to love one another more. That would be powerful. But I know some got to go to work tomorrow, and others got to go to school. And because of that, what we're going to do in our new series, Me to We, is we're going to focus on the one another passages in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Here's our roadmap. Next weekend, bear with one another, Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. To bear with somebody means that if they're struggling, even if it frustrates you, you're going to be in the game with them to help them through that situation. This is so important because what we're seeing in various articles written, many Christians across America, when they found a Christian that didn't kind of align with everything that they believed in, they abandoned them. We gotta be known for bearing with one another. March 20, speak truth to one another. Wow, God's truth, what could that be? What could that look like? We're gonna talk about that. March 27, forgive one another. Ephesians 4, 30 through 32. There's one thing I've known uh, throughout doing what I do is that many Christians hold on to stuff. 
for days, weeks, months, but more likely years or decades. We gotta be set free. And then on April 3, speak psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another. Imagine that. Michael's imagining that. But we need to be imagining that. What does that look like? How can we live that out? And then on April 10, submit to one another. Now, in the context of the whole church, but then in particular, what does it mean to submit to one another in our marriages if we're married? Friends, we are called to a one another way of life. This is the life we're called to. This is the way that we're called to. And yes, there is a way that appears to be right, but in the end, it leads to death. So I say, let's choose a different way, the Jesus way. And instead of contributing to our me-centered world, let's follow Jesus together. And as we do so, he's gonna give us everything we need to make a shift from me to we. It's something he started teaching even before he went to the cross. He says, out of my love for the world, I'm gonna taste death for every man, every woman, out of my love. So he says, whenever you gather, as often as you can, this is a we thing more than a me thing, do this in remembrance of me. Not just that we reflect on what he's done on the cross, but that we live out the reality of his death and resurrection in our daily lives. That's why we remember. And so Jesus, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you and for you and for you. All of us together, friends. Let's eat and let's remember him. And then he took the cup. As he looked around that room, he said, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Friends, we can be part of God's family because of Christ shed blood on the cross. That we could belong to one another. Let's drink and let's remember him. Jesus, we thank you that out of your love for us, you pursued us. You went all the way to the cross. You rose again so that we could know life, life everlasting, but not just a life unto ourselves, a life where we enjoy and love and serve and grow with one another. Help us, Lord, to grow in that kind of community. Help us, Lord, to, wherever we go, to represent that one another mindset and heart set to others who are desperately in need or just need a word of encouragement. Lord, that every day we would live out the truth of your sacrifice, the power of your resurrection, and that we would be the hands and feet of Jesus wherever we go not just in our neighborhoods, but out on the streets, wherever we are. Because you, Jesus, loved the world so much that you gave your life. You 
paid the price for our sin. We're humbled by that. We're amazed by that. And Lord, we thank you for your love. A love that's like no other. Help us, Lord, to share that love with all others in this world because you came for those in this world. May we do so for your glory, your glory alone, Jesus. Thanks for listening. You can stay connected throughout the week by following Montgomery Community Church on Facebook and Instagram. For more information about MCC, visit our website at mcc.church.